Hey folks, and welcome to the 700th episode of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content director at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing on in our series in the book of Deuteronomy, and here the guys will be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 1 through 8. A few events coming up at Theopolis to keep in mind. March 11th through March 15th, we have an intensive course entitled Music and Life, which will be taught by John O'Hearn. For more information about that course, you can check out the link in the show notes. We will be in Chicago March 22nd and 23rd with a regional course with Peter Lightheart and Warren Gage and Seeing Christ in All of Scripture. Our psalm singing regional course taught by myself and Paul Buckley will be in Louisville, Kentucky on April 12th and 13th. And our annual Summer Theopolitan Ministry Conference this year is going to be on sexual sanity in a disoriented age. That'll be on July 15th and 16th. And for more information about all of these events, there's a link in the show notes. We hope that you enjoy this conversation, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart, Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John discussing the book of Deuteronomy. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers. Uh, Brian Motes is uh, recording, and he'll be editing everything and making it available to you. Thank you for listening. Uh, we appreciate your support, and we uh, hope that what we have to say in our podcast is edifying to you and beneficial, whether you're uh, studying scripture on your own or whether you're teaching the Bible, whatever kind of setting you're in where you're trying to learn more about scripture, we hope that we have benefited you through our podcast. Uh, we are in the middle of a study of Deuteronomy. Uh, we're going through a section of Deuteronomy that uh, covers the 10 words, and we're in the middle of a section that has to do with the seventh word, thou shalt not commit adultery. And we've looked at the first part of that section, which begins in chapter 22, verse 9. And so far, we've covered verses 9 through uh, verse 30 of chapter 22. But that section continues on into chapter 23, and at least roughly what we're saying at this point is that it goes through chapter, uh, sorry, verse 14 of chapter 23, uh, and then at verse 15 of chapter 23, we shift into the eighth word section that has to do with theft. Uh, so we've been dealing with a, a lot of issues concerning sexual relations and the consequences of sexual relations, different different kinds of illicit sexual relations and how the law deals with those. Uh, and uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of last episode, we're moving into something, into an area of the seventh word section that's less obviously, that isn't so obviously connected with the seventh word. I think a couple of things we said in the last episode actually helped us to make the transition. And we talked a good bit, uh, specifically looking at 22 verses 28 and 29. We talked a good bit about uh, the fact that uh, sexual partners in ancient Israel are not individual isolated actors and they can't be considered as such. They're members of families. Uh, their action has consequences for the community. Uh, and so their other parties are involved in the situations that are described here. Sometimes it's the parents that are involved in chapter 22, verses 13 and following. If, if a husband accuses his wife of not being a virgin when they marry, then both the father and the mother are involved in proving the woman's virginity. The father is involved at, in the uh, example in verses 28 and 29, uh, where a man seizes a, a virgin uh, and uh, lies with her, and then the father is uh, involved, we suggested, uh, approving the 
marriage or disapproving it, but also involved in, in being given compensation for the wrong that's been done to him. Uh, the elders are involved in the other cases where there's a, a sexual sexual crime that has occurred. It's taken to the elders, and the elders are the ones who enforce a penalty. Uh, so uh, you never have uh, individual actors, and and you're in this network of relations. And Alistair pointed out that you're not only in this network of relations, but you're you also uh, have to con- be concerned with the consequences of sexual relations over generations, over time, because uh, sex produces children, and so. Uh, it's not just the two parties. It's not just their parents and their social network and the society as a whole that's in, implicated, but it's future generations because their sexual relations and illicit sexual relation might have consequences for their children, which is the case uh, in chapter 23. Um, as Alistair pointed out last time, uh, one of the cases of exclusion from the assembly uh, is uh, persons of illegitimate birth excluded to the 10th generation. That also raises the issue, um, which is running through uh, the first eight verses of chapter 23, uh, raises the issue of the consequences of sin being passed on from generation to generation. Uh, that's included in the in the second word. Uh, the Lord carries on to the third or fourth generations of those who hate me, cursing third or fourth generation of those who hate me. Blessings continue for a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Uh, but that the fact of in, intergenerational consequences for wrongs for sins. The results are not just the immediate results. You have an illegitimate child, but you might have consequences that carry on for generation after generation because that illegitimate child is excluded from the assembly, but then the descendants of that illegitimate child are excluded for 10 generations. So by keeping in mind the the uh, the wider understanding of sexuality that we have in Deuteronomy and in the Bible generally, keeping that in mind will help us see the, the connection between the uh, more explicitly seventh commandment com- uh, rules of chapter 22 and the the more the the ones that are more loosely connected in in chapter 23 verses 1 through 8 of chapter 23 I'll just say this to conclude my introduction deal with four different cases uh the first and they all have to do with who can be a member of the assembly of the lord uh they have to do uh, first of all with uh, physical deformity uh somebody who is emasculated somebody is wounded in the crushing of his testicles or has his uh, organ, his male organ, cut off. The word for male organ here is uh, from a verb that means to pour out. So it's something that has this pouring thing uh, cut off. Uh, They're excluded from the assembly of the Lord. Uh, Bastards, uh, those of illegitimate birth, are excluded. Uh, Ammonites and Moabites are excluded. Uh, And then Edomites and Egyptians are mentioned in verses 7 and 8. They're also uh, excluded, but uh, not, not as long as others. So those are the four categories that are being dealt with, and I think uh, generally they all come under this heading of thinking about the consequences of sexual wrongs and also the consequences of sex itself, which produces these generations of of peoples and nations. So I guess a pivotal question we want to answer here is exactly what is uh, implied or, or, or meant by the assembly of, of the Lord. What does this refer to? What kind of functions... Um, uh, did that assembly have? Yeah, you had, that was my first question, is what does it mean to enter the assembly of Yahweh, uh, the kahal? Is that uh, sanctuary access uh, to whatever degree an ordinary Israelite would have access to the worship, to the festivals, 
to the sacrificial system? Does it have to do with what we would call civil citizenship? Yeah. Uh, what do we think that means? Here's my stab at it. Uh, I think the cases where it's used of historical events are there's an assembly at Sinai. This is a call at Sinai. That's the language that Moses uses early in Deuteronomy. Uh, what happens at Sinai is the day of the kahal, the day of the assembly. Uh, and then there are other occasions uh, in the Pentateuch where uh, it refers to uh, Passover assembly. There's the mountain of the assembly, which is uh, Sinai. In Leviticus, Yom Kippur, the, the rites of Yom Kippur, are, they achieve covering or atonement for the assembly of Yahweh, and the sins of the assembly are placed on the scapegoat. So uh, those uh, you could say that those are all kind of liturgical settings, but I think really, I, I, I don't think that uh, you can really disentangle the liturgical and what we would think of as civil. And I think probably the category, the category that I think is most comprehensive here is the, the kahal is the covenant assembly of Israel. So it includes membership in the liturgical assembly of Israel because there are places in the there are places in the, the Psalms that talk about praising God in the assembly. So there's a liturgical dimension to it. But I don't think it can it, it's not just that given the given the other settings where it's used. I think it's in the covenant assembly something something more like uh, both liturgical and civil citizenship in Israel. I mean, if we want to complicate things, we could also raise the question of how does this distinguish from the congregation, which is a different Hebrew word. Uh, and uh, I mean, there are there are different studies that try to try to distinguish between those. I, I I haven't found anything that really clarifies. I think the the maybe a rough distinction would be the kahal is the the congregation of all of Israel, those who are part of the liturgical assemblies and those who are also involved in the civil life of Israel. Uh, and the Ada, the congregation, seems to be more constituted of elders and leaders, but um, that doesn't seem to work entirely. So this wouldn't necessarily exclude these folks from the holy convocations. That's a different word in Leviticus 23, including the Sabbath convocation, the, the Sabbath assembly. Uh, and but maybe some of the other major feasts. So I, I guess my question is, if you're an individual who has, who falls into any of these categories, for symbolic reason, it seems like you're going to be at some distance from, you know, the temple, from the tabernacle, from the sacrifices, from whatever. But does that, I mean, look, every everybody, every modern evangelical or reform guy who reads this is going to think, well, is it, is, does this mean they can't be saved? You know, they can't be forgiven. Uh, they can't have a, you know, personal relationship with Yahweh or however you want to put it. I, I don't think that's what's being said here. But for some symbolic reasons, they are, they are at a distance. They're excluded. Uh, of course, we'll get into those reasons, I think, in a few minutes. But is, is that what we're saying? Something like that? Yeah, I think that maybe the maybe the uh, a line of um, consideration would be analogies with the regulations about priests in Leviticus twenty one and twenty two, which I don't think the language is identical, but it, it includes uh, crushed crushed testicles is one of the things, one of the physical deformities, imperfections that excludes the son of Aaron from participating in the priesthood. 
but that participation of the priesthood is not uh, he's not excluded from everything that priests enjoy. So what he can't do is go into the tents or come up to the altar. He can't participate in the priestly activities that require uh, access to holy spaces. But I'm pretty sure that the it explicitly permits them to eat from the the priestly portions of sacrifices and so on. So uh, that would be a way of thinking about it. So if this is if this is applying some version of that rule to the whole people of Israel, it's a priestly people, and so physically deformed people don't have physically deformed people in these particular ways. There are other deformities that aren't listed here that are listed for the priest. So I think a hunchback, a normal Israelite who's not a priest, as a hunchback, he's still a member of the assembly of the Lord. Uh, that's that's not he's not excluded, but I think that. Maybe an analogy with the priests, they can't draw near, uh, they can't participate fully in the uh, sacrificial life of Israel, perhaps, but they would be included in the in the uh, uh, in the uh, festivities of Israel without coming without drawing near in uh, to the tabernacle courts. Perhaps that's a way of thinking about it. Is the assembly of the Lord completely synonymous with the assembly of Israel, which is the language that we often encounter elsewhere? Yeah, I'm 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 equating the two. I don't know if that's uh, if that's justified, but I'm I'm assuming that there's a they're just two different ways of describing the same thing. But I think from your description earlier, Peter, you're not saying that someone with these uh, issues cannot be considered an Israelite. Yeah, true. So just yeah, I guess again, just um, the analogy with the priests. I'll, I'll withdraw that statement because I contradicted myself, didn't I, Jeff? I, I think analogy with the priests is a hunchback descendant of Aaron still a priest? Uh, yeah, he is. He's still considered part of the priestly clan, and he has certain priestly privileges. Uh, other priestly privileges he does not have. Maybe that's the way to think about it. Um, a uh, an Israelite who's physically damaged in this way. He's still considered part of Israel. He's still part of the royal priesthood of Israel, and yet he doesn't enjoy fully the uh, the, the privileges. So uh, I guess that would mean, to in answer Dallas' question, that uh, the assembly of Israel, the people of Israel, and the assembly of the Lord would be uh, would not entirely overlap. Maybe well, one illustration of this is I know that the ending of Ruth, Ruth four, from Perez to David is. Uh, you know, the 10 generations there. And that's an example of a maybe forbidden union that after 10 generations, you have David. But at the same time, all these folks that are in between Perez and David, they're Israelites. Boaz is, seems to be the full member of the community. In fact, he's the, probably the cause of the reason why the famine has been lifted. So, um, so and that, 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 it's always made me wonder. I mean, uh, about just what what is it about the tenth? What is what actually is happening with the tenth uh, generation that's then permitted into the assembly? Is this maybe enabling them to to have of what we would say official positions like David or um, something like that? Is, does that make sense? The other question is whether this is something that applies many generations in the future as well or whether this is just dated from that particular generation as the founding generation of the nation um that that na 
for that generation, that's when things are counted. So several generations in the future, if an Egyptian marries in, maybe the um, there would be some sort of general principle of prudence that's applied here. But the relationship between the different nations will have changed. And it's not necessarily the case that there would be a longer period of time for a Moabite than for um, an Edomite, um, maybe at some point in the future. I mean, my inclination for whatever it's worth, we can go into why, is, is to think that this isn't just a static point. So when Moses is speaking, then the relevant counts are three generations and tenth and ten generations on. But there's there's also the bigger question to my mind. I mean, I'd, I'd be inclined to read verses two and three as no Ammonite or Moabite can uh, enter the assembly of the Lord, e even, even to the tenth generation. Um, he shall not enter the assembly I'm, I'm inclined to see that as as they never enter the assembly of, of of the lord and so i've i've read this idea of um uh the 10 the count of 10 between um david and and judah at the end of ruth and i i've heard people kind of read that in light of deuteronomy 23 and it it's always struck me as kind of um odd on on quite a few levels i mean obviously judah and tamar are pre pre-law um also it's, it's not clear to me that their union would have been a forbidden union um at that time and or given the death of um tamar's previous husbands and then it's not clear to me that even after 10 generations it, it becomes okay so yeah I, I i don't know what you make of that well, that would smooth out the uh, what looks like a tension between verse, at least verse three and verse six, because verse six says, "You shall never, never seek their peace or their prosperity all your days." And if there's a limit to the inclusion of Moabites and Ammonites, uh, it seems like that's what that's what verse six is specifically referring to. There's a uh, if it's specifically to Moabites and Ammonites, then uh, uh, then yeah, it would seem verse six seems to exclude them permanently and. You're saying the verse three does also, but you're. What are you saying? Uh, what's the? Uh, what is verse two saying then? Is that is that also saying anyone of illegitimate birth is excluded permanently? And you're just saying that that uh, Judah and Tamar don't they aren't covered by that rule, and so the ten generations to David mean something else. Yes, I'd be more inclined to see there being a pattern of tens there. So there are ten between. Abraham and Noah, 10 between Noah and, um, sorry, between Adam and Noah, and then right. 10 between Noah and Abraham, and then another 10 to David. And I kind of see those three tens as echoed in some way in Matthew's three fourteens. So I, I would see mm. significance to the 10, but just not not Deuteronomy 23 significance. At Alistair's comment is intriguing because if this just, applies to that generation <clears throat> that Moses is addressing here. And if you, you could even then add that to join that with what James said about the number 10 indicating kind of completeness, completeness so that even to 10 generations really just means perpetually forever. Okay. There's no 
there's no uh, no joining uh, for these folks. That makes sense for verse three. I'm not sure it makes sense for verse two. And why would verse two be limited to that generation? What's the rationale? The historical rationale is pretty clear in verse three. I'm not sure why verse two would be limited to that particular generation. So the the gen the the generation of uh, Deuteronomy as the starting point, you're saying that that there doesn't seem to be any any rationale given for that well, for verse that, two. Yeah, that was Alistair's suggestion, yeah, right. and I wonder if, wonder what he thinks about that. Yeah. Well, I, I guess the one of the one of the questions I would have uh, about verse three, and if I'm 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 thinking of James's point, um, by what right then does Ruth enter, or does she not enter the assembly of the Lord? Uh, is that the way we should think of it? And what about yeah. Moab, what about the people of Moab that uh, David conquers? Are they incorporated in any way into the assembly of the Lord? We're back with the original question, which I don't think we ever clearly answered. I guess I, guess that- I would not see a convert as um uh as a ammonite or moabite i, uh, I would gotcha. yeah the other question here is whether we're supposed to see the assembly of the lord as exclusively male um the testicles and the male organ that's focused upon at the beginning and then the um exception of ruth um other things like that might suggest this is a male only group I mean, one one reason why I'm leaning to the idea of what I'm going to call a, a, a rolling third generation, so rather than a, a third generation anchored in Moses in verse uh, 8, is I'm assuming that this idea that um, Egyptians and Edomites can come in in the third generation, I'm assuming that it's too... Um, establish some kind of continuity and um uh common culture within the assembly and so obviously you've got a whole bunch of egyptians who come out with israel at the time of the exodus and you would think there would be kind of edomites mixing every now and again particularly in the south of judah and so i'm reading and this is an assumption verse eight as being that kind of children born to them in the third generation by by that stage that family has now got a view of what life in israel is like and how the things of the lord work and they're kind of nativized to some extent and i mean this is a very modern problem isn't it how, how do you um have high um migration rates into a country and yet establish continuity and i'm imagining that verse eight is something like by the time uh you want a um someone who has an egyptian background let's say to have a reasonable integration into israel society before they enter an assembly and then a part of judgments civic decisions etc etc one of the questions then would be whether this presumes that intermarriage is not going to be the norm. Rather, you're going to have these um, people who will be resident aliens and maybe over a period of several generations. Some of those will be integrated. Um, Those who are um, married into Israel as women 
um, would naturally be included. However, if there's an Edomite who's dwelling among the people, he has to dwell for three generations before um, that family needs to dwell for three generations before they become nativized. And they'll become Israelites, um, whereas formerly they were a family and a few generations of resident alien Edomites. But this isn't really dealing with the case of um, marrying into Israel. I want to go back to uh, Alistair's question. I, I, we've got we've got a bunch of uh, suggestions uh, floating in the air, but um, Alistair's question about the constitution of the assembly, the kahal, and whether it's exclusively male, uh, I think that's I think that's right. And you think about the the ways that uh, uh, groups of Israelites are numbered; they're numbered uh, sometimes as men along with women and children. So I think I think that's I think that's probably right, which means that it's again it's not coextensive with Israel as a people because the women and children would be included within Israel as a people, but it's more like a citizen assembly that has certain kind of both both certain some kind of uh, liturgical uh, dimension, liturgical rights, but also some kind of uh, political or civil authority uh, participation in the assembly of the Lord. And I mean that that fits with other rules about uh, in 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 Deuteronomy about uh, liturgical participation. Women are welcome to come to the three annual feasts, but men are required to come to the three annual feasts and constitute the liturgical assembly of Yahweh, the covenant assembly of Yahweh, at the tabernacle. So, um, uh, yeah, I think I think in other words, I, that's just a roundabout way of confirming what Alistair suspected. Yeah, and so there are various times when Israel is. Uh, convoked, uh, brought together in assembly as a deliberative body, almost, you know, and oftentimes, of right. course, it's the elders who are um, representing the people, but it sometimes seems like it's more than that. For example, you know, in Samuel, when they, when they demand a king or in, in other places. So this would be forbidding these folks from being part of the deliberative body, whether that has to do it on a liturgical occasions or with matters of state, you know, uh, civil matters. Uh, Peter, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. That makes more sense than anything else we've suggested so far. You know, I think, and if, if we're taking that as our uh, as our premise, then James's comments about the third generation inclusion of Edomites and uh, Egyptians does make sense because, uh, yeah, you want to, in addition to the symbolic symbolic resonances of the third generation, with all the other time periods of three that you have in the Bible, that's resurrection, renewal. In addition to that symbolic, you also have the practical aspect that uh, they're integrated into Israel. Now they have some, they can participate in some kind of governing, uh, the governing body of Israel. And if you think about the historical situation here, you have Israel in the plains of Moab 40 years after the Exodus, and lots of Egyptians came out with them, remember? Uh, and for obvious reasons, intermarried. So they, you probably have this, the first generation of Egyptian-Israelite unions on the plains of Moab. You come into the promised land, you've got a couple more generations before they can be part of the assembly. I think that's right. I mean, part, part of the symbolism, I guess, of the third generation may be that it's not actually connected to um, the punishment of sin. So sin is 
um, punished even to the third and the fourth generation. And so I wonder if kind of part of this symbolism, I, I also do take it literally, but um, if part of it is that what's being done is a prudential judgment and not kind of a punishment of um, ancestors that is rolling over. I don't think we've uh, discussed yet the uh, the grounds for excluding the Ammonites and Moabites, um, which is the specific actions. You, th might, you might think that Ammonites and Moabites are being excluded because of their their origins uh, with uh, in, an incestuous relationship with Lot, but that's not mentioned here. What's mentioned here is the way that they treated Israel when Israel came up out of Egypt, and it's a tool infractions or two assaults on Israel as it were they refused to provide food and water and then they hired Balaam to curse against Israel so the I mentioned at the the tail end of uh, last week's episode that uh, the standard of uh, exclusion is these people's treatment of Israel uh, and their treatment of Israel is taken as that determines their status before Yahweh and their status in the assembly of Yahweh Similar to what you find in the Gospels, where uh, the treatment of the apostles determines the fate of certain cities. When it, when uh, the Lord sends out the twelve to the uh, twelve, uh, the twelve tribes of the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and He says that uh, if you come to a city that rejects you, then you shake the dust off, and it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Uh, it's not that that city has rejected Jesus, it's the city has rejected Jesus' ambassadors. And you have a similar kind of analogy here, or a similar kind of representation here. The uh, hospitality to Israel is a welcome of Yahweh, and a refusal of hospitality to Israel is a refusal of that welcome. There's also the fact that Balaam's advice was the advice by which the um, Moabite women um had relations with Israelites to corrupt and bring a curse upon the nation in chapter 25 of Numbers. And so it was precisely through a, an attempt at intermarriage and bringing Israel into the service of idols and false gods that um, they acted towards Israel. So it wasn't just the lack of hospitality. It was this explicit attempt to um, corrupt the assembly and so that would seem to be something that corresponds to it right yeah i think in both cases you're talking about uh the, the ammonites and moabites are anti-yahweh people um yahweh provides food and water in the desert the ammonites and moabites don't yahweh blesses israel in fact he turns even balaam's curse into a blessing verse 5 says um but ammonites and moabites curse curse Israel through Balaam and yeah as you said they they corrupt Israel so everything that everything the Ammonites and Moabites do to Israel as they come up out of Egypt is the opposite of what Yahweh is doing for Israel one of the kind of issues in understanding this passage that I have is that the Ammonites and Moabites seem to be treated as a group there in verse 3 onwards and it's not clear to me that in the original accounts in numbers is it chapter 20 that the um ammonites are, are actually included in what what the moabites um do certainly in in the balam in incident and i think it talks about how israel conquered someone up until the boundary of the 
Ammonites. It, it, it almost feels like they're excluded. So that's one question that I have. And then I also wonder why the Edomites don't fall into the same category because they um, they wouldn't allow Israel through either, would they? And and so it's odd to me that it feels like the Edomites um, do more bad stuff to Israel than the Ammonites, um, and yet the Ammonites are excluded and uh, Edomites aren't. Yeah, I wonder if in in those cases you're. I mean, you could say the same thing about the Egyptians. The Egyptians are excluded for three generations, and then they're brought into the assembly of Yahweh. But they were the ones that enslaved Israel and tried to wipe out wipe them out by killing all their children. Um, so, and you know, Pharaoh tried to prevent Israel from leaving Egypt in the first place. And why aren't they in the same category? I wonder if it's a matter of a memory that stretches back beyond the immediate, you know, the immediate previous generation. So, uh, yeah, the Edomites mistreated, but in in some in some past generation, you had this brotherly relation. That's what well, that's what uh, verse seven says. The Edomite is your brother. It's a remnant. It's uh, calling them back to the Jacob Esau relationship, uh, and uh, you know, in spite of their conflict between Jacob and Esau, the final. The final scene of Jacob and Esau together is a reconciliation scene. And then the Egyptians, although they turned into oppressors and they turned to enslavement and murder, uh, they initially welcomed Israel into the land and provided a uh, provided Goshen and so on. Um, so I wonder if it's uh, the good uh, uh, the blessing and the good behavior of even earlier generations overcomes the the memory of that overcomes the uh, misbehavior of later generations. There's also the fact that the overwhelming majority of the mixed multitude presumably is Egyptian. And so this is primarily an issue for the Egyptian population that are part of the wider group of Israel. And you might think in that context also of the way that many of the Egyptians were positively inclined to the Israelites, even though their leaders, particularly Pharaoh, were um, firmly opposed to them. And Ephraim and Manasseh are uh, both uh, sons of a mixed marriage, Joseph and Asenath, the Egyptian Egyptian wife of Joseph. I, I like all those suggestions. So you, you could have the idea here that kind of God um, rewards or, or God's mercy to past generations of Edomites and, in, and Egyptians sort of extends beyond the um, uh, yeah the the more recent um, punishments. Let's say, yeah, that doesn't answer your question about the Ammonites, which I think is that is a, that is an intriguing question. Why do the Ammonites get grouped in, even though they don't seem to be seem to be party to the to what um, what Moses summarizes here? And even even in even in Moses' own summary, I'm looking uh, looking up in Deuteronomy. Even in Moses' own summary of the that encounter with the uh, Moabites, there's no reference to the Ammonites being uh, included with them. So that I think that's still a puzzle, unless somebody has a a brilliant solution to that. I don't have a brilliant solution, but I, I did want to flag up the way in which, while Moab and Ammon are excluded um, from the assembly here, it's interesting that this isn't outright hostility or 
encouraging war or, or anything like this because explicitly um in the chapters you're talking about peter is it chapter two um israel has said sort of don't go and contend with the people of um ammon or moab and the lord says because i have given um them their land as a as a possession and it re- refers to them i think as the sons of, of of lot there and and so it it's an interesting thing isn't it, it it's exclusion but not out, outright hostility or anything another question is how are these uh people distinguished i mean the, so is it about are the ammonites those who live in a particular land have a geographic boundaries and the moabites too or it's probably not either or it's also obviously religious uh, liturgical they're 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 idols but i mean is it is there some racial element to this too i mean how do you know who's an ammonite and who's a moabite uh, maybe confession uh this is who i am this is where i come from this is my background this is my ancestry but it would seem to me that there's a lot of well it, there is there's a lot of uh you know, movement in the ancient world, much more than we're used to with regard to business and travel and caravans and stuff. Um, it always intrigues me. How do you know who's who? <laughs> yeah. And that, 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 that question also applies to verse one and, and verse two. How do you know whether someone is uh, the product of a forbidden union? How do yeah. you know if someone has crushed testicles or a, uh, the male member has been cut off uh i guess maybe in a culture which is um you know smaller more intimate you you would know these things but um it's still a question i always have about this even 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 with regard to identifying an israelite you know what happens when paul goes into a synagogue even in the first century and he brings Timothy, and Timothy's not circumcised. Well, how do they know he's not circumcised? You know, is, are there video cameras in the in the stalls? To, you know, what what um, <laughs> there, or or is this just uh, a culture that has a lot more intimate knowledge of one another than we do? Yeah, more intimate knowledge of uh, people's bodies and and uh, covered parts than we were used to. That's that's a good question. I mean, you have the same kind of question with priests. Um, I think that some of it would certainly be in the uh, the realm of self-reporting. If you're a priest and you have uh, hidden physical deformities, then you're would be responsible, I would think, to say something. And maybe that would be the same thing for uh, an Israelite uh, who is uh, has crushed testicles or has his penis cut off would confess it and be self-reporting rather than having inspection uh, to find out if somebody is, uh, is, is uh, properly endowed before they come into the assembly of the Lord. I'd also want to go back to, so are we, uh, are we assuming and agreeing that Ammonites and Moabites are excluded? Uh, if you have a self-confessed Ammonite or Moabite that comes into Israel and converts and wants to be a worshiper of Yahweh, then they would be not be uh, come under these, rules that somebody could be in the assembly of Israel, or is it a permanent racial exclusion? So somebody who has Moabite or Ammonite ancestry uh, is permanently excluded from the assembly of the Lord, even if they're, you know, they're resident aliens of the land, uh, they have certain kinds of 
rights and privileges being in the land, but they aren't part of the assembly of the Lord uh, because of that descent. Is that is that the extent of the exclusion? So, I mean, I'm going with the idea that a convert wouldn't fall under this um, prohibition. That that's my kind of um, best guess. Yeah, I I'd like I think that's right. Um, so here's uh, if there's someone who self-identifies as a Moabite, um, that's one thing. But for example, the the Book of Ruth, Ruth does not self-identify as a Moabite anymore. My, you know, your God, my God, uh, where are you buried? I'm going to be buried. She comes into the land, and she's accepted by Boaz as uh, not a, a, a Moabite anymore, but a convert. Uh, and and there's there seems to be no, absolutely no concern about her ancestry uh, when Boaz takes her on by anybody, either the elders at the gate or anybody else. Uh, and that seems to be a good example of uh, a former Moabite becoming an Israelite and it having really nothing to do with race or bloodline. Uh, it's all about religion. Right. I mean, Naomi says to um, uh, Orpah, doesn't she, Ruth's sister, um, well, sorry, says about Orpah, um, her, you know, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods, um, do likewise. But Ruth doesn't, you know, so by the implication, um, she is um, disassociating with her people and with her gods and, and, and joining Israel. So, that, I mean, that seems right to me, Jeff. The question is whether this would... If this, if the congregation or the assembly is a male deliberative body um, and representative body, would the same thing hold moving the other direction? Um, the question of a an Edom of a Moabite man taking an Israelite woman and claiming loyalty to the Lord, um, is he able to be a member of the congregation? I, I would assume so. I mean, I'm not obviously certainly exactly what would be required for conversion but i mean if we think of kind of david's men let's say i mean these are good men who are loyal to him and loyal to the lord but who often carry kind of gentilics with them i mean uriah the hittite um let, let, let's say and so there is a memory of their foreign origin but they, they're clearly part of the assembly they're they're I mean, Uriah is loyal to the Lord precisely when David isn't, and and so it it, it feels like there is that joining. Um, uh, you, but then you you're not denying that the joining takes place. Are you, in the male case? Are you Anastasia? You're you're just asking kind of how or I'm asking whether if this is a male assembly, in the case of Ruth, she's not joining the assembly. Um, her descendants may join the assembly surely but um are we talking about something that applies differently depending upon um a male or female party so are we talking about a situation where there's an edomite man say and he takes an and he's a resident alien or perhaps he's a resident alien and his son takes an israelite woman um I'm thinking about those sorts of dynamics. You're talking about uh, Moabites or Edomites, right? Because the Edi Moabites are Ammonites, because the Edomites are permitted in. 
either. I'm I'm not sure that there is there evidence of any sort of delay, for instance, for legitimate participation in the assembly in the case of Ruth Ruth's descendants. I don't think there is. Um, mm. Whereas it would seem to me, if right, we're I talking see. about the male line, it's different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, right. That yeah, that seems reasonable to me that there would be a distinction there. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.